Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. What's going on today, everybody? Uh, I have some interesting news. Uh, This is a quarantine first for me this Saturday. So by the time many people are listening to this, maybe even, I am attending my first Zoom wedding. Oh. Wow. Yes. I uh, have seen a t- I've heard tale of those on the internet, but I haven't too. actually attended one. I uh it's so these two people who my wife went to medical school with, they met in medical school and they had to cancel their wedding. It was supposed to be this Saturday. They've rescheduled like the physical thing for sometime in January. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're like they have the paperwork drawn up or something, so they're actually going to have like a little like service that everyone's going to watch on Zoom, which I'm sure will be good enough. Or, or, I mean, you know, fun enough, and I'll be happy to uh, participate in that. But then afterwards, they're trying this thing where there's going to be a separate Zoom reception with people at different digital tables, and that's giving me a lot more pause. That sounds Wait. very chaotic. <laughs> Wait, Go so ahead. is there a Zoom? Is there a Zoom cash bar? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's BYO Zoom booze. So yes, great. It's ZYOB. I can't wait to hear Jesus, how that Zoom your own booze. What am I saying? ZYOB. It's right. funny that you bring this up. I, this evening, this very evening, have a uh, Zoom bachelor party. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Great. Which I, I, I'd like to see someone chart out on like a graph the differential in fun value between a, a wedding and a Zoom wedding and a bachelor party and a Zoom bachelor party. Well, let's see. You got to we we, we, we think can... the differential's higher for the bachelor party, right? I would think so. Well, we can we can trade notes on this next week. Um, sure. After this all this is all gone down. But uh, before we get to that, I uh, we should probably do a real a real show here. We're also we on Zoom. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, Alex and I had a really interesting chat with Brandon Lowry about a story that he wrote for Law Three Sixty, uh, looking at law offices and how law firms are suddenly like many employers in the country starting to look at their uh you know their expensive office spaces in uh you know in urban centers and wondering whether or not that's a thing that they really need now that all their employees are working remotely yeah it turns out those things are expensive it's crazy how that works yeah i think uh uh, we we won't we won't say which firm but uh one firm is paying 54 million dollars a year for their uh manhattan office yeah uh stay tuned it's it's a good it's a good interview um yes but before Um, then we're gonna stay we're gonna stay in the world of new york city real estate new york real estate um and uh you know highlight the the work of another one of our reporters emma whitford who had a really interesting story about how new york is um heading toward this sort of showdown over real estate because the the current blanket ban on evictions that has been in place during the pandemic is set at some point in the future we're going to talk about when exactly that is people aren't sure it's going to be replaced by a less restrictive set of rules and you know how what those rules are going to look like and and how exactly it goes into effect is causing a lot of confusion and anger among um uh both tenant and landlord attorneys yeah i think a lot of this stuff is really interesting cuz we are officially sliding to a new phase of the pandemic where some restrictions and things that were put in place as immediate safeguards are being pulled back so yeah. what for people that aren't in new york like we are what happened with evictions in New York, what what was the set of rules we were operating under under until now? Well, like a lot of um, different states, the uh, Governor Cuomo passed a issued a, a statewide eviction moratorium, barring all 
evictions, residential, commercial, whatever. Um, you know, some people, again, both here and in other states, were calling for more sweeping measures for rent moratoriums or, or you know, the cancellation of rent for certain periods of time to sort of deal with the economic fallout of the uh, the stay-at-home measures. But, um, but the temporary ban on evictions was still very important, even though it was not those more sweeping things. You know, it, it was designed to, there were concerns about, you know, causing homelessness and and causing you know more exposure to the virus by people being put out of their homes and also you know just taking you have a situation where people are thrown out of work they the the economic da- damage is already substantial you're just going to make that worse if you start kicking people out of their houses and you know further uh, exacerbating the 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 economic fallout so we were operating under this uh, eviction moratorium you know, it's obviously a very fraught issue in a lot of different ways. And now as, as as we start to get into the, I don't know, soft launch, soft reopening of of New York City and other economies, what's trying to what set of rules are are, are sort of poised to, to take effect instead? So like you mentioned, New York is is sort of cautiously moving toward yeah. uh, reopening, I think, a bit slower than some other places just because New York was so hard hit by the virus. Um, but Cuomo issued a guidance this month that's saying that effective on June 20th, um, some eviction cases would be allowed to proceed forward in court. So many cases will still um, be prevented from going forward. Uh, you know, the tenants who are being evicted uh, but are facing, but but are either eligible for unemployment insurance or benefits or are facing financial hardship because of COVID-19 will still be prevented from being evicted. Everyone else cases can can move forward, you know, if if there's no hardship caused by the virus or you're not eligible for these unemployment benefits, then cases will go forward, but the idea is that this new rule will still shield people who are directly impacted by the pandemic. I mean, that sounds really logical on the face of it. But if you stop and think about it for just a second, it's still confusing. I mean, how do you prove that you were directly impacted? How how much do you have to be impacted? Like, are there rules of the road for this? I mean, it seems so, yeah. a little up in the air. It's also just there's also just like eight million people who live here, or however many yeah. it is. So I mean, just just on even if it were simple to prove it, it's just like by sheer magnitude. But yeah, the criteria question is probably most pressing. Yeah, I mean, like you guys said, there are. Like everything in the in in this situation, we're sort of in uncharted waters here. So yeah, um, but so then you try to roll it back, and you get into sort of deeper, trickier questions. Like it's not clear, you know, what has to be shown or who has to show it to show who's eligible for these rules. Like it's easy, it's easy to say, okay, well, just show your unemployment check. But what if you're in sort of like Emma had a great quote from someone who said like what if you're in the gray economy what if you're working off the books what if you're a babysitter mm-hmm. who gets paid in cash um another thing is that like who just in terms of the legal onus in court you know is is the is it on landlords to request those financial documents from tenants before they before they do this if if that's the case do courts then initiate discovery proceedings which then creates more court proceedings which you know um what if tenants fail to respond entirely? What if, you know, it's it, so it just creates all sorts of, you know, substantive merits problems for how this works. But on a more yeah. basic level, people don't 
even know when this is really going to go into effect. The rule, as I mentioned earlier, is supposed to go into effect on June 20th. But in remarks last week, the governor described it as as an extension of this current blanket moratorium. The quote, we're going to extend until August 20th. So no one can be evicted evicted for non-payment of rent, resident or commercial because of COVID until August 20th. Then we'll see what happens. So, you know, and, and Emma quoted a bunch of different attorneys who were just confused based on the wording of the law. So it has just created this very uncertain situation. And and, you know, it no one no one operating under the law wants to wants to go into a situation not knowing exactly what any of this stuff means with all this kind of swirling in the air with this this threat of not threat but a, the 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 uh you know notion that 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 eventually this kind of inscrutable set of rules will come down and then confusing remarks from Cuomo what are we seeing this week in terms of like how this is actually taking not not it's not taking effect yet but like the effect that it's having sort of among the renting community the obvious fear is that there's going to be this huge rush of cases next month because yeah uh you know if you take all these different landlords who were trying to evict people or you know it's just a very large area huge sample size so you're going to have a ton of people who have wanted to initiate these kind of proceedings all suddenly running to court and you, you know, these novel issues that I was explaining that no one really knows how to deal with, you know, it's going to make <laughs> right. that a whole lot harder to to figure out if 12 trillion people all try to file cases at once. And and so what we saw this week with with those concerns is the New York City housing court um, began taking up certain pending eviction cases to try to lighten the load when that comes, whether it's next month or August or whatever. So yeah. um, the court started hearing cases that commenced before the pandemic, and it only applies to cases where both sides are represented by attorneys, um, and and they're only doing it for the limited purposes of trying to work out settlements that would then need to be approved mm-hmm. by a court. Um, you need the court to be open, but it's not like they're litigating. It's not like you're... Yeah. Um, and very importantly, the courts still are not going to be issuing eviction orders in these new proceedings. Um, the hope is that the landlords and tenants can work out settlements that that you know mitigate the need for everyone to run to court right when they can that you know when you're dealing with people who are with two sides that are both represented by attorneys perhaps that's more sophisticated uh Mm -hmm. uh litigants you know big commercial leases stuff like that where perhaps settlement deals might be a little bit more workable in terms of a payment plan or whatever but the hope Mm -hmm. is that with all this confusion going on and and all this sort of uncertainty of how things are going to go next month we'll at least be able to trim off some cases before that sort of surge happens for our next story i want to stick with areas of the law where the realities of the pandemic are making normal transactions and things be more fraught um so Last week, reports surfaced that Uber was in talks to buy Grubhub. Um, The idea was that Uber wants to beef up its own food delivery part of its business. And this possible tie-up has reignited a debate over whether or not mergers should be allowed at all in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, Certainly an active time in the food delivery uh, world. It would make sense, I guess, that, that Uber would want to do something like this. This is definitely the thing you want to get in on. But obviously, like you say, fraught is maybe even a bit of an understatement. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just intuitively, we can all see why Uber would want to do this. They were hard hit by the pandemic. Their executives yeah. have said in various you know, SEC filings and, and public comments that, you know, travel restrictions, social distancing, people just aren't taking ride shares 
generally right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and to weather this period, they just want to kind of pivot to what consumers really want and need. And and delivery of food is big business at the moment with so many people stuck in their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they want to move toward. I mean, if anybody didn't already realize, Uber has a whole division called Uber Eats, and it's right. basically a delivery food application. Um, so the deal itself has not been officially announced, but there's been a lot of reporting that the two companies, Uber and Grubhub, are talking about it and that it could be in the works. We haven't seen, as you mentioned, uh, an official announcement, but we're already starting to see pushback. I mean, it's not a particularly you know warm time for large tech companies in general, and I think there's been sort of some some headwinds in terms of uh, you know the, the the market power of those companies. So now we see two very very large Silicon Valley players in the middle of a pandemic, you know, combining. Yeah, it's it's we're already seeing some pushback. Yet Democrats in Congress are not pleased. Um, we have a House member, David Cicilline. He heads up the subcommittee in the House um, that deals with antitrust issues. Yep. And he hates the idea of this deal. Here's a quote from him. Uber is a notoriously predatory company that has long denied its drivers a living wage. Its attempt to acquire Grubhub, which has a history of exploiting local restaurants through deceptive tactics and extortionate fees, marks a new low in pandemic profiteering. So not mincing words there. He doesn't like the idea of this. And he's not alone. On the Senate side of things, um, Senator Amy Klobuchar and um, some of her Democratic colleagues, they sent a letter this week to the top antitrust officials in the government at the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, asking them to be really careful to review this deal if it does, in fact, materialize. I think one one thing that's really interesting to note is that Grubhub itself was already the product of of a uh, a fairly large merger. That there was for a while there was Grubhub and Seamless, and they became this merged entity, and now they themselves are merging with the other real option for delivery food. Yeah, I think you really have nailed it there what some of the concerns are. I mean, I think the backdrop for starters is that Uber itself is a company that faces a lot of pushback about how they handle um, things with their employees. They've had worker classification issues and disputes. They've had concerns over driver surveillance. They've had sick leave um, concerns even in the middle of this pandemic. There's been lawsuits about that. So, it's yeah, maybe I think, a company I think that's once, already people are already looking at as as potentially having problems. Yeah, I think I think once we did like a whole show or maybe a whole segment about like a grab bag of Uber yeah, legal entanglements, yeah. and now this is, we're just maybe piling up here. Yeah. We are, and so then you layer on what Bill was talking about that um, Klobuchar's letter, uh, along with some of the other senators, really kind of spells out the core concern here, and it's that some of these mergers get really close to what we would consider a monopoly. So just mm-hmm. some stats on this. Uber Eats has about 20% of the uh, app-based food delivery market. Grubhub, 28%. So that's the two that want to combine. And then DoorDash has 42%. Mm -hmm. That's across the nation. But then when you look at merging Uber Eats and Grubhub in particular markets, in New York City, for example, Uber Eats and Grubhub together would have 79% of the market. So, okay, yeah. Well, that makes me feel better because I was like, I've never used DoorDash, and that right. would shock me. That that, and then I'm like, well, like, I'm in New York. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, Cicilline had a, another... He's got a lot of really fiery quotes on this. He's not been happy. So here's another one about this exact point. We cannot allow these corporations to monopolize food delivery, especially amid a crisis that is rendering American families and local restaurants more dependent than ever on these services. 
we get into sort of some some bigger questions about especially at a time when businesses of all sizes are having some pretty serious struggles and that you know within their four walls i'm sure it would make sense to them to try and partner up just to kind of weather the storm but it, i mean this is sort of at the at the nut of a lot of antitrust law creates a question about whether any sort of big merger should be going through right now. And I know that that's something that lawmakers are talking a lot about. Yeah, that's right. So you're right. There are people in the in the corporate community, in the business community, and some people in the GOP who support a lot of those interests who are mm-hmm. saying, hey, without mergers, some of these companies can't survive. They're going to have to merge to make it through the sure. economic crisis we're in. But the other side of that are people like um, uh, Cicilline, who he back in April proposed a moratorium on all big mergers um, during the pandemic. And he had reasons for it. He basically looked back in history and said, during the last economic crisis in 2008, there were mergers and they were really disruptive. And they led to things like firing of millions of workers, slowing of investment, um, some increases in executive compensation that happened at the same time workers were losing jobs. So that's his argument for why we should just put a pin in all of this until we're past the worst of this pandemic that we're all going through. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's not alone in that. Senator Elizabeth Warren, along with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have proposed what they call the Pandemic Anti-Monopoly Act. And that would stop large corporations from merging at this time. So basically what that means is that there's going to be continued focus on these kind of potential deals. And we're Mm going to have to see if this general unease about mergers during a pandemic leads to companies like Uber and Grubhub not actually being able to combine. This week, the Pro Se Podcast is sponsored by Roundtable Group. For over 25 years, Roundtable Group has been the leading provider of expert witness referrals to litigators. Roundtable Group's skilled team is available now to discuss your case and present candidates and fee schedules free of charge. Just visit roundtablegroup.com or call 202-935-3300. Coronavirus has made every company in America rethink the idea of the office, and law firms are no different. As remote work suddenly seems normal, law firms are thinking long and hard about whether they need those multi-million dollar offices in the sky. Here to discuss is Law360 Brandon Lowry, who did a deep dive for us over at Law360 this week on the suddenly shaky future of the law firm office. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thanks for having me. So, you know, you know, you watch uh, a John Grisham movie or, you know, you think about what what law students are thinking about when they think about firm life. And it's these sort of opulent offices in Manhattan or D.C. or in San Francisco or whatever. And it's these, you know, these there's an idea of what the law office is. Can you sort of, you know, when when we when people think about this, you know, what is it that 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 firms are doing in terms of their offices and, you know, why they think they need that? Well, basically, things have been a certain way for a very long time. And uh, there have been generations of lawyers who had this idea of what a law firm should look like. And for a long time, you know, way back, it was the, you know, the mahogany paneled walls, the giant law libraries with like chairs to smoke your pipes in or whatever. Right. 
And that's changed over the years, you know, in, in the eighties, maybe there were a lot more, uh, you know, glass bricks, you know, and, yeah. and kind of, uh, um, more modern paintings and, and that kind of a thing. But something that has been consistent over the years has been, um, that law offices are really big <laughs> compared yeah. to other industries, right? You, you go to a, a corporate office, you go to an insurance office and you look around and everybody's got these little cubicles. There's just less space per employee. Mm -hmm. And some of that could be justified by having filing cabinets and the need for all these books, these law books and staff and everything. But uh, now maybe that isn't the case because of technological advances. And so it's 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 an expensive thing, right? You know, we we sort of we're looking at this and and uh you know, it's it's you know, what's necessary and what's not necessary, but uh the the your story had an interesting sort had a couple of interesting numbers in there about what some of these big firms are spending or how much space they're taking up. Yeah, um the top 3 expenses for firms in order are uh staff salaries, real estate, and uh, technology. And technology is catching up to real estate, but real estate is still by you know, far and away the, you know, the, the, one of the, mo the biggest expenses that a firm has. So every dollar that a firm saves on real estate is a dollar that could go to partners or could go to something else. It's, it's pure profit if they can save it. But law firms have generally not skimped when it's come to real estate, they're, they're, uh, for whatever reason, uh, law firms find this to be more of a, a thing they want to keep than a lot of other businesses. What kind of what kind of money are we talking about here? Just like I mean, you 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 had a lot of everyone should read Rain and Story. It's really interesting. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like you 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 singled out Cravath for one. I want to like give people like a top line number so they understand exactly what kind of money we're talking about. Yeah, well, well, Cravath, um, they. Are paying fifty-four million dollars a year just for their Manhattan office. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's, uh, that, that, that's that that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. I mean, they're a huge firm with footprints all over the place, and these are like 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 you say, these are like huge palatial offices. Um, they're not cheap. Uh, this is at its heart a coronavirus story, and we'll get to that in a second. But one thing that you see bandied around a lot whenever people are talking about this stuff is that crises like this don't always. Um, you know, cause change, but accelerate changes that were already underway. And you started to get at that when we began talking. Some firms were already having a little bit of a come to Jesus moment about these opulent offices. Um, what what were sort of the longer term trends that 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 brought us to where we are now? So this is interesting because it's it's mixed. Um, sure. So let's take a look at Cravath's current office. They actually have pictures on their website if you're curious to look of these literally mahogany paneled walls and marble floors and big law uh, libraries and things like yeah. that. Um, they're they're going to move though. They're going to move to Hudson Yards. They're moving from, uh, uh, where is it? It's, I think it's near Central Park and yeah. uh, but the moving to Hudson Yards, which is kind of the up and coming new area, new development. Um, and they're going to downsize pretty significantly. It's going to go from 600,000 square feet. That's six city blocks. Yeah. To um, to I think it's four hundred and eighty thousand. Mm -hmm. A modest, a modest four hundred eighty thousand um, um, square feet. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know how they're going to fit everything in there, but it's yeah. uh, no. But, but in all seriousness, it's likely to be more expensive per square foot. 
or at least possible to be more expensive per square foot in Hudson Yards because it's a newer building and uh, it's in high demand. Um, well, they 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 and others were making moves like that and thinking about how big their sort of physical footprint needs to be. Um, you mentioned technology. I mean, why were they thinking about this? I mean, even absent Corona, which we'll get to in a second. But well, I mean, what was like propelling them this way? Yeah, several firms are downsizing because of uh, well, there are a variety of reasons that experts attribute this change to. Um, one of the big ones is recruitment for uh, millennial lawyers who are less interested in space. They don't really care about having a private office. Always a millennial angle. Always. <laughs> <laughs> I might yes, be a little, yes. I feel a little bit biased. I am one. And, uh, sure. I think but, we all are. But, yes, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we millennials don't, they don't care about space. They don't need a private office. They don't care about making partner and having, you know, this, this fancy corner office. They aren't likely to be as excited by walking into their office and looking around and seeing just, you know, ostentatious displays of wealth. Right. Yeah. Right. So, the, the, some of that remote working stuff, you know, some of the, the, the more flexible lifestyle too, I, I assume sort of, you know, plays in for millennials. Exactly. So they're more excited about technology than yeah. they are about, you know, the things that get boomers excited. And <laughs> Well, and the uh, technology was a big part of it, too. You, you mentioned these law libraries, which are sort of are obviously changing and not so physical anymore. Correct? And support staff and all that kind of yeah. stuff. You know, things that used to be physical are now, you know, just shrinking in size. Yeah. And so support staff, that's something else they're talking about removing from the physical office space. And, mm. uh, you know, now that the you know the, the we talked about COVID, um, yeah. this is accelerating the change to remote work, and it's making remote work more possible. Um, it's making it easier. Firms are investing in it, and so uh, now that the infrastructure is established, it's going to be really easy to start moving lawyers and uh, support staff out of the physical office space, which makes it much more like optional, I guess, to come into the office. Has it been sort of like an aha moment for these firms, right? That they, you know, I, I, th I get that sense from that, that employers all over the country are starting to figure out that where they're like, you know, it seemed so impossible that you would have your entire, you know, your entire workforce remote. And here we are two and a half, three months into it. And it seems fairly doable. I mean, is that is are, the, are these law firms coming to the coming to the realization that, you know, we don't need to spend the fifty four million dollars? Well, I can't speak for them, and and uh, but I found it interesting that none of them wanted to speak to me. So I, <laughs> I, call, I called, I called a lot of law firms uh, and emailed a lot of law firms for this story. I, I assumed that they'd be excited to talk about you know their upcoming moves. You know their their new their new digs are going to move into in Hudson Yards or whatever, yeah. right? And they were really excited in their press releases that they sent out uh, mm -hmm. beforehand, right? Um, but then now, not one firm would speak to me for the story wow. on, on the record. They would refer me to press releases or whatever, but they didn't want to talk about their space. So then I spoke to a bunch of consultants in the industry, uh, consultants, sure. and, and they told me pretty uniformly that everybody is freaking out about real estate and a, a lot of costs, to be, to be honest. I mean... Uh, the cost of support staff, the cost of all these things. They're looking to cut anywhere they can. Um, and I think 
that this is starting to come into focus. Uh, the, the trends that uh, millennials don't care about space and millennials are going to make up most of the workforce in just a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty soon you're going to start seeing millennial leaders at law firms and uh, you know, who, who don't care about the office space, <laughs> right? So let's just bring it into focus here. You talk to people who track the industry very closely. And of course, big law is not a monolith. Different firms are positioned differently. But is there a sense, you know, a month, two months, a year out about how they're going to approach this? Can we say that, is there a sense that like the opulent big law office is a thing of the past? I think you can say that the opulent big law office is for the most part, a thing of the past. There are still going to be firms that need to have an impressive office uh, just because of who they deal with and what people um, expect of them. So if you're a firm that has all these bet the company cases, uh, you're not going to want to be in a strip mall, right? Like Cravath. Cravath, you know, they set the standard for associate pay. They're 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 old. They're really prestigious. Uh, they can't just move into a 4,000 square foot, you know, we work space or something, you know, it's, sure. it's so um, on the other hand, if you are a, you know, if, if you have an insurance practice, in fact, it, it could be that you don't need to ever meet somebody in your office. So it doesn't matter what your office space looks like, whether it's yeah. just a bunch of people working from home. Mm-hmm. Um you know, that's, it's, it's less important and they could probably save a ton of money adjusting their office space if they have, if they're paying a lot for it now. You mentioned specifically in your story, the firm Scadden, that they've, you know, taken this approach of, of, you know, it's, it's perhaps a modern, a modern design on this sort of elite law firm uh, office. Walk us through that. So Scadden has kind of designed the millennial office and everybody, you know, all the consultants are excited about it. All the people who nerd out on law firm design, which is actually like a real like industry, um, specifically law firm design. And, um, you know, Scadden, they have moved to Hudson Yards. They were one of the first to dive in. Um, You know, I think it was in, in 2015. And They've created this space that, that has been described as um, it, it, it's not ostentatious, just it's just beautiful. It's it's uh, let's see, their their former property was eight hundred and twenty six thousand square feet, and their new property is five hundred and twenty thousand square feet. So well, I, I guess, love to be not ostentatious. I, 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 mean, I guess always something to shoot for. <laughs> Well, and it's, it, but it, but it bears repeating that you know Scadden isn't losing money. They're not like they're not downsizing in terms of the, the the money they're making or the prestige that they have. So to drop you know nearly you know a third of your size is really is really something. Right, right. So I mean, it, again, this is all in relative terms that this is less ostentatious or not ostentatious. Yes, yes. But another thing that's interesting is the actual design of that firm. Uh, they they don't have giant partner offices anymore. The offices are more standardized uh, and, and interchangeable. Um, mm-hmm. the, the furniture even is interchangeable in the offices. It's, um, you know, maybe a little bit more, uh, I, I guess I could liken it to Ikea, <laughs> you know, where it's, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more modular. It's more just kind of a, a standardized thing. You could just remove, you know, put things in, remove them and yeah, make more of it. And the focus is actually on, um, communal areas. 
at this firm rather than than private offices. So that kind of goes back to what millennials want. They want more places to to brainstorm, to meet, interesting places to sit and talk, um, and that kind of a thing rather than uh, you know wowing people who walk into your palatial office. You know and yeah. Well, we might have to uh, we might have to reach out to Scadden now and ask them uh, for comment on you saying that they buy their furniture at IKEA. But uh, <laughs> other than that, um, Brandon, very very interesting story. Something we're seeing in uh, many industries. The idea of you know force changes right now could lead to longer term changes in the future. We really appreciate you uh, joining the show to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. our show is something offbeat and Alex I think you have one you want to tell us about Uh, you know this isn't like a specific story so much as it is a glimpse at uh, the newest judge on the court of international trade near and dear to my heart this is a man named judge Tim Reif and here's the thing to understand about the court of international trade okay Uh, it's an important court the trade laws are important they made a whole separate court to deal with the trade laws, but the why don't they build comes- the whole court out of the trade laws? <laughs> <laughs> but the writing that comes out of that court can be esoteric, to put it kindly. Uh, some would say boring, uh, technical, <laughs> I mean, very rote fairness- opinions. In fairness to trade uh, judges, it makes sense because they're dealing with really technical stuff, and yeah. they usually have to write to reflect that. I get it. So anyway. Uh, this guy, Tim Reif, um, is a smart guy. He was the trade counsel on Capitol Hill for a long time. He worked at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office for the entire Obama administration. He was just appointed to the bench in January, and he's written seven opinions so far. And in each of these opinions, he has peppered in some reference to a movie or a TV show or a book. And like, it's not unusual for judges to turn to some kind of, you know, literary work to to underscore a point but he's done it like this appears to be his thing and i don't know if this is actually the case i'm trying to get an interview with him to talk about this i don't know if he feels that there is a gap in like creative writing on the trade court but he's really and we'll we'll go over some of this stuff individually but this is like a bit now where he's written seven opinions Go ahead. So I am delighted and smiling and happy to talk about this. And meanwhile, classic fashion, Donahue is making a face about yeah. how much he hates when judges go into this like little shtick of working talked, in the fun yeah. jokes. So this is a this is well trod territory between the two of us where we diverge in our opinions here. You are literally making law. Like what if what if <laughs> legislators yeah. peppered in just fun cultural references into a statute? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Like yeah. I, I just don't it's just too cute by a mile. Like what yeah, are we well, doing here? Like yeah. I I can I don't know what to tell you Bill. I hear what you're saying. I feel the logic in that. I just in the core of my spirit disagree. Well, I think go- it's I think it's fine. I mean, they're still making law and they're still, you know, interpreting the law, that is, and uh, making it clear in the decision. It sounds like he's just adding a little, little, have some dignity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, what is he Like, even if you want to sort of articulate a point, you know, we had, we had, we had uh, last year, we had that, that audio with, with John Roberts, how he sort of 
turn like puts Bob Dylan lyrics yeah. in there sometimes and all that. But this is like a thing with Tim Rife now. Let me just walk through a couple of these so we don't have to keep talking in the abstract. Okay. In his very first case in uh, January, uh, he opened it a little bit corny on the nose with the li- the last line from Casablanca. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This is not germane to the case. <laughs> this is a customs classification issue about plastic packaging materials. This is just kind of like, hello, I'm on the court. Um, right. Later in that opinion, he had the graduate, the exchange from the graduate about plastics. Uh, the next case, uh, he quoted at length. That's the other thing. These aren't just like simple lines that are like themes. There are whole like pages of dialogue. This one's like from Alice in Wonderland. Both really? The, both whole the, pages? Okay. Like, like, like dialogue between characters, not yeah. just like, oh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, whatever. Libya is a land of contrasts and all that. Um, Mary Poppins got thrown in there. Ma- Ma- uh, Machiavelli's The Prince. Uh, earlier this this week, um, he quoted uh, The Godfather from Mario Puzo. Uh, we are all honorable men here. We do not have to give each other ins- assurances as if we were lawyers. He's a fan of that. Um, the thing that really raised my eyebrows, though, um, and then we can get on this. Um, uh, last week, he or, or this week, rather, he released an opinion... Uh, about a customs classification case about jewelry boxes that quoted two different uh, romantic comedies. Ooh, Sweet Home Alabama, two? the famous okay. proposal scene from Sweet Home Alabama inside the Tiffany's store in Manhattan. Again, famous. many lines famous. of dialogue between Patrick Dempsey and Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> uh, and then the proposal with uh, Sandra Bullock and Ryan Gosling. Again, I don't know where he's gone wrong. I think it's Both fine. of these are second-tier rom-coms. Just well, wait, though, Bill. A couple of months ago, he quoted from... This was a dispute about the proper service of court papers. Have either of you ever heard of the movie called Serving Sarah? Do you know this movie? No. N- no. This is a, like, Best Buy discount bin romantic comedy from 2002 starring Matthew Perry and Elizabeth Hurley, where Matthew Perry plays a, plays a service processor... The guy who serves court papers or whatever, and he serves them to Elizabeth Hurley, and she convinces him to like run away with her because she's like getting divorced or something. This is a many pages of dialogue from Serving Sarah. Crazy. This is a plot you would make up if you were just like like riffing. Yeah. Anyway, this is quoted at length. Just googling legal (laughs) themes and movies. I'm literally trying to talk to him about it. And I, but I mean, they're not all legal. But I mean, this is, I mean, th- he's, he's, you he loves your, serving Sarah. Sure. This much we can say. You and your colleagues dunking on him in a legal podcast is really going to increase the odds there, pal. <laughs> hey, uh, not but, all of I us mean, were dunking. But we'll talk about that after. I still you know. find a little charm here. So maybe I'm helping your cause, Alex. I think it's interesting in that, in that it's interesting in the, this is the way he is choosing to write these otherwise pretty, you know, mundane opinions um but it's become kind of an event uh among the people who cover the trade court which is me and like four other people uh, <laughs> to be like hey what's rife gonna do now he hasn't gone into we have like sort of prestige historical dramas uh musicals kids fair romantic comedies i'm thinking he goes horror next we yeah. might get like texas chainsaw massacre or something honestly Ac- if action. he does if he Maybe does horror action, next we're gonna Rambo have to talk about blood. it again yeah, I, would love I don't it. know. Drop some uh, Die Hard in there. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Tim Reif, if you're listening, I am uh, earnestly awaiting the, uh, or rather, eagerly awaiting the next opinion. Great. Uh, thanks for bringing that story to us, Alex. I enjoyed that far more than Bill did. <laughs> it, it was it, it, it was a pleasure, really. And Bill, thanks for bearing with me through that. I will see both of you next week. We also want to thank our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our graphic designer Chris Yates. 
We want to thank our guests this week, Brandon Lowry, and contributing reporters Emma Whitford, Ann Cullen, and Craig Clough. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us. And if you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week. This week, the Pro Se Podcast is sponsored by Roundtable Group. For over 25 years, Roundtable Group has been the leading provider of expert witness referrals to litigators. Roundtable Group's skilled team is available now to discuss your case and present candidates and fee schedules free of charge. Just visit roundtablegroup.com or call 202-935-3300.